Welcome to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. My name's Tammy Simon. I'm the founder of Sounds True, and I'd love to take a moment to introduce you to the new Sounds True Foundation. The Sounds True Foundation is dedicated to creating a wiser and kinder world by making transformational education widely available. We want everyone to have access to transformational tools such as mindfulness, emotional awareness, and self-compassion, regardless of financial, social, or physical challenges. The Sounds True Foundation is a nonprofit dedicated to providing these transformational tools to communities in need, including at-risk youth, prisoners, veterans, and those in developing countries. If you'd like to learn more or feel inspired to become a supporter, please visit SoundsTrueFoundation.org. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Mathieu Ricard, who is joining us from the south of France. Mathieu is a French author, photographer, translator, and Buddhist monk. After receiving his PhD in cell genetics in 1972, he decided to leave his scientific career to practice Tibetan Buddhism. Since then, he's become well-known for his best-selling works, his writings, as well as his talks on happiness and altruism, which have been viewed by millions. With Sounds True, Mathieu Ricard has joined with co-authors Christophe André, a well-known French psychiatrist, and Swiss philosopher Alexandre Jolien to create two books. The first book was called In Search of Wisdom, A Monk, a Philosopher, and a Psychiatrist on What Matters Most, and now a new book called Freedom for All of Us, A Monk, a Philosopher, and a Psychiatrist on Finding Inner Peace. These are books that were originally published in France and are now available in the English language through Sounds True. I feel so fortunate to have this conversation with Matthew Ricard and to be able to bring it to the Sounds True audience. Here's someone who's talking about the path of inner freedom, looking at the obstacles, the training we need to go through, and the fruits, the fruits of the path of training. Someone who himself has dedicated more than five years to solitary meditation practice. Someone who is qualified truly to speak on the topic. The big-hearted, supremely intelligent and clear Matthew Ricard. Great to be with you again, Matthew. And if you could begin let our listeners know where you are, where you're broadcasting from. Oh, well, um, a few months ago, I left uh, my happy Himalayan mountains where I was staying in the, my little three by three meter hermitage facing the Himalayas to, to take the last plane that were coming back from Nepal for expatriates and to be near my mom who is 97. So it's good because since then I would have been uh, sort of stuck there. So I'm in south of France, in Dordogne, a very lush valley. So I swapped the mountains quietness for the forest quietness. Beautiful. Sounds True has now released in the English language the second book, 
with you and your dear friends, Christophe André, a well-known French psychiatrist, and Swiss philosopher Alexandre Jolien. The second book is called Freedom for All of Us. Tell us a little bit about how the three of you got together to have a dialogue that became this second book, Freedom for All of Us. So the first book was also circumstantial. I mean, we, we had a friend who wanted us to uh, talk together in a beautiful uh, chalet in Switzerland just for, for pleasure. So Alexandre Jolien, who is an extraordinary mind, is a handicapped, uh, really handicapped Swiss philosopher. He was 17 years in the institution, and then someone re recognized that he was incredibly intelligent, so he did, become, he did a degree in philosophy. And uh, he has a fantastic memory because he has a hard time to read. So he really wanted that we come down. So we did that. So uh, we were supposed to do it in the Swiss Alps, you know, in the mountains, in the snow. And then the friend who was inviting us got sick. So we did that instead in Dordogne, where I am now. So just after the book was uh, in France, at least, you know, French are a bit special, was very successful. It was uh, 2016, it was number one nonfiction throughout the year you know, half a million copies, blah, blah, blah. So we wanted to thank that friend who got the idea. And uh, one year after, we went to a place for a week and we said, we are not going to work at all. Just, you know, go on the snow, have a nice time, eat French uh, Swiss trees and all that. So the first evening as we went back and we were sitting by the fire, you know, we start talking. And then I thought, this is so nice. This is few, quite a lot of things that we never talked about. So I put a recorder and then here we started again but you know in the first one we just uh, usually went to the some of the subjects which have been dear to us all the time which is about emotion the ego all kinds of things the second one it was i think much more constructed it was really around the theme of of, of inner freedom and we really built it up together so what is inner freedom and why do we need it compared to outer freedom? And then what what's, prevents inner freedom? What are the different obstacles? And we had very different approaches about the main obstacles. Now, how we can overcome those obstacles? How we can have a, an environment that is favorable to inner freedom, both a physical environment and a human environment. So the ecology of inner freedom. And then we went on to how do you train in, in the freedom? Are you cultivated? Because they, nobody, nobody wants to make any effort. They want everything, the, the secret of happiness in five points and three weeks, of course, doesn't work. And then finally, after all the efforts, what are the harvest of inner freedom? What sort of person it, it does bring you? So I think it was a very uh, nice, and I, I really wanted to do something on inner freedom. If they if they have not agreed to discuss on that, I would have done it on my own. So I was very very happy, and uh, and then uh, one early morning at five, I woke up and somehow I I remember a famous French movie by René Clair. It's a classic movie, and the title came up, and it doesn't translate well in English, but "A nous la liberté," let's have freedom, something like that. So. It was a nice title in French, but it's not easily translate, translatable in English. So that was the story. <laughs> so it's not a, it's not a follow-up of the book or like a second book. Uh, well, it 
didn't do as much as well. I mean, the tour, still for France, it was quite good, like 200,000. But because people thought, well, it's volume two. It's not volume two. And frankly speaking, as far as I'm concerned, I think it's a better book than the first one. <laughs> huh. Why is that important for you to say that it's not volume two? Why is that an important point? Well, no, because people say, well, you know, they got it. Because it's all idea that first, you know, somehow it happens that the three of us are authors that are well-known in France and sells a lot of books. You know, last two years ago, there was the 20 most sold authors in five years, and we were number two, number five, and number six. So they all thought, well, that's another of those things bringing to... It's a, it's a it's a gig from the publisher to bring three famous authors together. There's no meaning, no substance. Actually, we are real friends in real life, and it was nothing to do with that. We always, every morning, we checked our motivation. What are we doing that for? Now we know we are a little bit, you know, loved in France as authors. But say, okay, we are not. We are only doing that if it is to bring something helpful to others. That's we should be our motivation. We don't care a damn whether it's a book that sells well or not. Even the first one, we didn't expect that it would be such a such a hit in a way. Really, really the motivation is only worth doing if it's good for others, otherwise forget it. So I think with this motivation, uh, that's why we wanted to explore new subjects that we had never talked about, like you know, in relation to debt and all these things. So it was not just like, okay, the first one worked very well. Let's make a number two. We'll get something out of it. <laughs> like rainbow one, rainbow two, rainbow three. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, what is your definition, Matthew, of inner freedom? What so is first it? of all, is we made clear from the beginning that we are totally in favor of outer freedom. This is crucially important, especially when people are deprived of outer freedom by, in any way, whether it's through poverty, uh, sickness, oppression, name it. So that's clear. Now, that's not enough. Because if we think that we are free in our mind, then I think there's a lot of introspection to do. We are so often the slave of our own thoughts, of our own automatic thinking, of our tendencies, our habits, and it can even be further, you know, even st uh, stronger up to the level of uh, addiction. And it could be emotional addiction, substance addiction, anything. So we are far from being free. And then I remember always, uh, I heard on the BBC radio, a, a teenager from England saying, for me, freedom would be to do everything that comes through my mind and nobody would have to object to it. I thought, well, that's a pretty good definition of being the slave of your wild thoughts. You know, you are like a, the grass at a mountaintop that bend wherever the wind blows. You're absolutely not in control of your mind. And strangely enough, people think that idea of doing anything that comes through your mind is the opposite of freedom for me. And mastery of the mind, and people think, oh, no, you know, I have to shackle my mind. But think about a sailor. That's, a, I think, a very nice example. The sailor, what is the sailor's freedom? Is to navigate where he, he or she wants to go. So if he says freedom is to drift wherever the wind blows, the currents take you, then you shipwreck very soon. So the freedom for the sailor is to rig the sail, take the helm, and navigate where to the chosen destination. So the 
being in charge of the boat is actual freedom. So like that, being in charge of our mind, not in a forceful way, but simply because you are not the, you know, like a restless monkey. Uh, your mind is going here and there. We are distracted all the time and follow every impulse that comes through your mind. So that's definitely not freedom. And we, it's a very significant impact on the quality of our life. So we need that inner freedom comes with the bounty of other qualities, you know, resilience, the faculty to deal with ups and downs of life, not being over preoccupied with, with yourself, therefore open to others. So many other extraordinary qualities comes along with inner freedom. And even from the spiritual point of view, you could say that Buddhahood is ultimate freedom from delusion and from the mental poisons. Now, you said in the very beginning that, of course, you and your co-authors stand firmly for outer freedom. Of course. There's no and question. I'm wondering the connection. What's the connection? Is there a connection between the work we do to achieve inner freedom and outer freedom in the world? Are they actually sort of separate efforts? No, no, of course. I mean, if, uh, if, if some, let's suppose an enlightened uh, head of state who is not the toy of his arrogance, his narcissism, his greed, his cruelty, like a bloody dictator is completely in the shackle of hatred, of, uh, of, total disregard for others, of total lack of empathy, of complete fear from being, you know, it's always the thing that people are going to assassinate uh, them. I mean, this is a hell of a life, you know, like someone like Stalin, uh, you know, absolutely zero inner freedom. It was completely conditioned by his ambition, wanting to hold for power, having caused the death of 50 million people, people like Mao and all these guys. There's uh, absolutely almost no <laughs> inner freedom, except that we should not uh, mistake inner freedom for willpower. They are this very strong will of domination, of uh, you know, anything can go in order to fulfill their ambition, and absolutely no regard for the welfare of others. And we see that you know, recently in all these uh, demagogic uh, heads of states, really have no compassion for their own citizens. So that's uh, being the slave of, uh, of selfishness, of, uh, of narrow-mindedness, of absolutely not caring for others is a lack of freedom. Okay. Do you believe that as people develop more of this inner freedom, that it is a natural flowering, that it will necessarily happen, that they will work for the freedom of other people in the world. It just goes that way. Or do you think that these are kind of like separate lines of development, if you will? How do you see it? I think inner freedom is, uh, is in fact the measure of how much you will be able to engage in outer freedom. And I think we have a quote from, from Gandhi in the book that says the degree of, of outer freedom depends on how much inner freedom you have. I, can, I don't have it by heart, but I think it's at the very beginning of the book that unless you are free from, from all this um, delusion uh, that makes you think, speak, and act in wrong ways. So, you know, somehow wisdom is not just a lofty sort of disembodied uh, 
idealistic concept, you know, for philosophers who are lost in the clouds. Wisdom means to be in adequation with reality, because delusion is to create a huge gap between the way you perceive things and the way they are. So it can be seeing things as permanent, since the self has been something where nudged that is really exist, things be uh, autonomous, where they're all interdependent, but it all can also be in a much more trivial level, all the fake news and all this stuff that we can see now. So that's, that's the opposite of, of reality, and that's the opposite of wisdom. So somehow, freedom from delusion is the, the, the main sort of quality of freedom. That's why in the various obstacles to freedom that we try to define, what is a Greek term which is dear to my friend Alexandre, which is akrasia. Akrasia means that uh, you know what something is good, but you do the opposite all the time, all the time. Now, you, he gives the example that he goes and buys 10 books on the dieting, and then he brings the book home, and then he sits on the couch eating you know, chips and watching the TV. So there's no the opposite of what you're supposed to do and you know you're supposed to do. But there are a few things like that. But for me, the most quintessential lack of freedom is lack of discernment, is lack of wisdom, is to be deluded about the law of cause and effect, to be deluded about what reality is. And then you are bound to say, be addicted to the cause of suffering because you turn your back to well-being and you rush like crazy to the very causes of suffering. And you keep your hand on the fire thinking, oh, maybe I will not be burned. So you are so conditioned by all this mental delusion that you are totally not, absolutely not free. So that freedom is crucial to gain happiness. And usually that lack of freedom comes with excessive self-concern, you know, the exacerbated feeling of self-importance. This is part of, of, of uh, delusion. So therefore, you, are, you cannot be attentive to others when you are in that condition. Well, when you are in free, I know there's not much expectation, hope, and fear. So you can be, since you are not so over-concerned by yourself, you can be available to others. You start to look around and see what others need and how can I address those needs? Can I do something useful? So inner freedom naturally will express as altruism and compassion, which are the key quality that we need in our world. Now, you mentioned these obstacles to inner freedom and how addiction can be one of those obstacles when we're doing things compulsively that we know are going against our best interest. And there's an interesting section in the book where you talk about some of the neuroscience. Yeah. And I know you've done a lot of work collaborating with the Mind and Life Institute and neuroscientists and looking at the impact of meditation on the brain. And to be honest with you, Matthew, I wasn't quite, I didn't quite understand this, this difference between... Yeah, well, I will let uh, Yeah, so if you could explain it and also what the implications are for it's the everyday very, very person. Neat. And yeah. there's a wonderful uh, researcher called Ken Berich and that's... And I just happened to hear him on the BBC last morning, so I sent him a message and we connected again. So he did a discovery that he didn't believe first in, and then nobody believed him, but then it made a major change in the field of addiction. So when you 
before you are addicted, you uh, enjoy something, you like something, the sense of pleasure. So it can be uh, anything, you know, it can be emotional, relationship, it often uh, comes down to substances, you know, alcohol or drugs, which apparently, I, I must say, I'm not a very good expert. I never drank a glass of alcohol and never tried a cigarette or anything. So I don't know, but it's well known that it, it gives you pleasure and that's why you want to. So that, that areas of the, that network in the brain, which likes something, which feel the pleasurable exp experience, is a very uh, labile or ephemeral sort of, those never last. Something that is pleasant, if you continue, becomes neutral and unpleasant. I mean, you can see that with any kind of pleasure. You know, eat something delicious, great. You know, three pieces of chocolate cake, mm, 10, you're sick. I mean, take, to take a, a hot shower after walking in the snow, how fabulous. But 24 hours under a hot shower, I doubt you will appreciate. In Guantanamo, they used to have a loud music, even the most favorite music of the prisoners, but 24 hours is a torture. So it is the case that the sensation of liking something is unstable. No, here's the trick, and that's what Ken Berridge uh, uh, has shown. So when you like something, there's a release of dopamine. And before dopamine was thought to be uh, the neurotransmitter of pleasure and reward and happy and feeling good and all that. But what he found is actually dopamine uh, is connected with a different set of networks in the brain, which wants something, which desires something. So by liking something a few times, and because it's a very nice taste or very blissful experience, you build up the uh, tendency to want that, right? And more and more. The thing is that wanting a, a, a sort of network is very, very stable. So once it is built, it stays. For It's not like it changed from one day to the next. So what happens is you start wanting powerlessly something that in the beginning brings you pleasure, but then increasingly doesn't. And even at some point, you can be disgusted. And by activating those area in mouse and rats, Ken Berridge could show that you could make, be addicted to extremely salted water, which they will never, never drink, touch a drop of it. They will drink it until they almost die. So you could create an addiction for something that you absolutely abhor and don't like. So, okay, that's already very important. And Alexandre Jolien, who has been suffering of uh, more like emotional sort of uh, addiction and so forth, he was very comforted by this uh, aspect because he was feeling disgusted with some aspect of his addiction. So now, how to get rid of that? Well, that's where it becomes a real challenge. And that's why also a lot of people keep on getting hooked up in addiction. So first of all, <laughs> the triggers are absolutely crucial. I mean, you can be triggered by a very small thing. You see a bottle, you hear the name, you see the white powder, you see an image. Uh, if it's someone you, you have an addiction, emotional addiction to anything. Once this is triggered, it's almost like a 
tsunami, a chain reaction. It's very hard to stop. So first of all, you need to protect from the trigger. But you remain sensitive for a long time because of that stable buildup of the wanting. Now, to get rid of it, you need to be very disciplined. Uh, and you need to change. Well, because your, your fabric now, your neuroplasticity has built up something that makes you want something. Here is the second obstacle. The will, the areas of the brain which are connected to willpower are diminished in addiction and as well as in depression. So it takes it really more difficult for you to really have the determination to get out. Now, third thing, you need to change your brain configuration. For that, there's an area called the hippocampus, which normally process training, you know, where the meditators train into compassion or attention, the hippocampus change. But it's true for if you learn to juggle, if you learn to sing. There was a famous study with London cab drivers who, before the GPS, had to learn by heart 14,000 names of streets. And the area, the hippocampus was getting significantly physically bigger. So because of the training. So now in depression, as well as addiction, the hippocampus is getting more lazy. It doesn't change, it's inhibited. It doesn't change very easy. So you have all the odds against you. So it really takes a lot of effort to get to muster some willpower. You need to be persistent in order to enact some change. But it seems that by far the best way are two things. First, you really avoid the triggers because you are sensitive for a long time. And then you try to get to a state where it's, you're so upset and you are so much at the rock, rock bottom of your life that you say, okay, this is no more possible. And you make the decision enough, once for all, I don't do that, finish for my life. So that usually can work. So you see, it's not easy. So now this is extreme case, but still there are so many people who suffer from that. But this is quite true, even in ordinary life, when you are not at the level of addiction, you see, you keep on wanting stuff that you don't need and you don't feel so much pleasure. Like uh, even binge shopping is a ridiculous addiction, which hardly brings any satisfaction to people, but they just do it. Now, uh, Matthew, just to ask you a personal question about this, you mentioned how you, you know, haven't uh, had any alcohol, a sip of alcohol. I mean, here you are as a monk. But I'm curious, have you noted in your own life any addictions, maybe subtle addictions, that you've had to work with and apply some of these principles and techniques to find your own inner freedom? Well, I think um, you can see that with any what we call the five mental toxins, you know, anger, uh, compulsive desire, pride, jealousy. So no, none of those bring you happiness. Uh, I mean, they actually, there's the opposite. They undermine your happiness. Nevertheless, you, you can fall prey to them. I mean, to different degrees. I and mean, I'm not a very angry, angry person. I mean, I have to go far many, many, many years before to find a time where I just blew the fuse where I was really upset. I mean, angry. And then jealousy, not so much. So anyway, you have different, you know, people have different shades. So at different degrees, the moment you see 
a little bit of pride, a little bit of uh, any of those, it's same because you sort of go into that um, direction. It's like wanting. And at the same time, in the end, you know it's going to bring you nothing but unhappiness. So I think one of the, since we speak about triggers and the importance of triggers, so the whole Buddhist practice is precisely to identify a, a conflicting emotion or a, what we call unhealthy mental states. At the very first moment when the spark comes, it's same as uh, avoiding the triggers for alcohol of a bottle of alcohol. Because at the time of the spark, it's so much easier to deal with it when, when the forest is in fire. Because then you need <laughs> call everybody, all firemen, and, and usually you get burned. So I think it's the same training that we do. And of course, I have to do it all the time because you know, I'm far from, <laughs> very, very far from the fruit of the path. But at least this is what the teaching teaches you. Put the, 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 the vigilance at the gate of your mind. And whenever you see, mm -hmm, oh, this one is coming. I know that little pride. I know that little desire. I know this one. Then if you are mindful at that time, then it's much easier to apply all the various antidotes that the, the, the Buddhist techniques or whatever psychological technique gives you. So yes, of course, I mean, I have to work all the time with my mind. There are many occasions where I, I feel strong regret that I was not considerate enough and not sort of attentive enough to others. And even not, I don't think I, for as far as I can remember, I ever willingly wanted to harm someone, but by not being careful enough, you know, I, I certainly had caused some disturbance in others' mind, and I feel very sorry for that because I was not attentive enough. So to cultivate, to be more aware, to be more attentive, to be more concerned by others, all this, uh, somehow, is the same process. Mm -hmm. Very good. Thank you. Now, you mentioned that the core of inner freedom is freedom from delusion. What are the main delusions that we buy into? So, well, there are quite a few. <laughs> About outer phenomena, one of the main delusions is to surimpose uh, qualities that we believe to be intrinsic in, on, on the world. So we think that something is, uh, as the Dalai Lama often said that. Sometimes we think, oh, this is 100% desirable, or this is 100% hateable, uh, hateful. So of course it's not true. No, nobody and nothing is 100% bad or good. We, we just basically 80% made it up or projected or superimposed. And then it's easy to see that after, after some months or days, we're just think the opposite, say, about, say, look at human relationship. What was 100% desirable and fantastic and everything, we could not see a single defect. My whole life cannot go without this. After a few months, how terrible and how horrible this person is. So we see that all the time. So it's the same with possession, with situation. Oh, no, no. If that happens, impossible. I cannot live with that. Or if I don't have this, I cannot be happy. No way. So all that is completely fabricated. You know, this is a complete distortion of reality. Then there are 
the distortion of reality linked with permanence and impermanence. You know, I think that my watch is my watch because I had it yesterday. Well, it's not part of myself. It's not part of my mind. It just happened to be on my wrist, but it's absolutely not mine in any intrinsic way. But still, I think this is the same watch as yesterday. We don't see that every single minute instant, everything changed, never things the same. So we don't see that. Therefore, we, we grasp to permanence and we grasp to things. That situation, that relationship, myself, that should always be young. How can I die? Impossible. So we revolt against uh, impermanence. So whether we, well, we believe in impermanence or not, it's there. No, there's nothing about, <laughs> even you don't believe it in it, it takes place. And then there's another big distortion, is to think that we are separate entities. Like, I can build my happiness in my little bubble because it's easier. I don't have to you know, worry about everyone's happiness. I may not have anything against it, but it's not my job. So that doesn't work. Why? Because it's, uh, it's, in, it's in opposition with reality. Uh, we are not like the snooker balls that sometimes each on, against each other, but which are independent. We are all in, incredibly intermingled, interdependent. Our happiness and suffering goes through and with that of others. There's no way we can be independent. So therefore, if we try to build happiness in this way, it doesn't work. It just fails. It's bound to fail. It's going to make you miserable and you are going to make everyone's life miserable because you will only think about yourself. And because you fail, you'll be even more upset. <laughs> so this is a distortion of reality. So lack of discernment, distortion of reality, all that are aspects of confusion because that leads eventually to suffering. Very good. Now in the first part of the book where you're exploring the obstacles to inner freedom, there's a section on discouragement and despair. And I wanted to talk to you about this, Matthew, right now, because I think in the midst of the pandemic, especially, I think many people are feeling a sense of discouragement and despair. I want to read a quote from the book from you and then have you comment on it. We often say that optimists are naive and that pessimists are more realistic. It's been shown that this handed down idea is false. Pessimists greatly exaggerate the negative aspects of a situation. And if we suggest solutions to them, they don't try them out because they don't think they'll work. Conversely, the degree of freedom of optimists is much greater. They try out dozens of solutions, one or another, which eventually succeeds. And so it's clear that you're very much here in favor of optimism. And one of my questions for you is instead of optimism or pessimism, what about just realism? Part of me would think that in someone in your situation yeah. would be, let's just see the situation realistically, but you seem to favor optimism. Well, so help me understand that. The reason that. I favor optimism because it has been studied, it has been shown that they are more realistic. <laughs> because it's no point adopting an attitude that just like, uh, because you like it or feels good. Again, if it's at odds with reality, it's not going to work. So that's the part of the, of the distortion of reality. It has been shown that at large, if you tell optimistic people, what, we, what they call optimistic at least, uh, according to the, you know, the different psychological scales, 
if you tell them, okay, here's the danger of doing this and that, you should not uh, overeat, you should be careful about UV light, you should protect your face, all kinds of things. And then you study how much they pay attention to the recommendations, depending whether they are on the pessimistic side of the scale or optimist one. And you see systematically that the uh, optimistic ones are, are, more, are more realistic. They uh, behave more uh, in close and accordance to reality. Uh, and the other ones, they say, oh, no, this thing not going to work. Anyway, this is just, it's just like that. So actually, uh, you know, people will say, well, a pessimist guy, you cannot fool that person. So he's probably more realistic. And there is a bias like that. Uh, there have been a very interesting study where uh, you present to a number of people in the lab uh, uh, reviews of fictional, uh, fictitious reviews about a book that doesn't exist. And, uh, and some of them are, you know, show all the weakness of the book, uh, some this and that sort of skeptical and caustic reporting. Other one, it was very um, lovely and uh, praising the book and all. And then you, you ask people, what do you think is the most uh, you know, realistic review? And people tend to favor the, the negative one because they think this guy, you know, he was, uh, he, he had more open eyes. Well, science shows that it's just the opposite. So in a way, being optimistic is more like uh, not, not uh, sort of uh, narrowing down your vision and somehow, because you don't narrow your vision, you are, it's a part of inner freedom to, to embrace all the possibilities. One of the things I wonder is if there's a kind of broken heartedness in pessimists. Like underneath this negative view, it's like they feel so much pain about whatever the situation is. That, and I'm curious what your thoughts are about that. How do we address that broken heartedness that's fueling actually our pessimism about the outer situations. You know, there are many uh, sides to pessimism. One is also to feel that we are no good well, ourselves. That, you know, anyway, you know, I, I never make it. And people don't like me. And I've never been so happy. And happiness is not for me. And people are mean anyway. <laughs> and most likely they'll try to cheat me, et cetera, et cetera. So, of course, I mean, if you start like that, it, it becomes also a self-fulfilling prophecy. So somehow you have to, it's part of precisely inner freedom to get rid of those habits, of those automatic thinking, because that's, those are, you know, the mind spinning, rumination and automatic patterns. And, and inner freedom is get, about to get rid of those automatic patterns and then have a mind that is free to somehow have a, you know, thinking that is not too, uh, distorted by your perception, by your preconceived ideas, by all kind of super superimposition and distortion of reality. So, yes. Yeah, so people who think that I am bad and the wicked world syndrome, everybody is bad in general. It's, it's a distortion. I mean, it's not like that. I mean, I like to speak of the banality of goodness. That most of the time, most of seven billion human beings behave decently with each other, and that's why we are so shocked when some people be behave in completely aberrant way because it's, it looks, doesn't look the norm. Otherwise, if, if, if to be 
wicked and uh, to be lying all the time and to be really mean will be the norm of human nature, then we will not be surprised at all. Why? It should not be in the news. What should be in the news is, hey, today someone did something good, amazing. We've never seen that. Well, the fact that we report all the time on the terrible things, we show that we consider that as abnormal. So that's a good sign, in fact, that the norm is to be a good person. <laughs> mm -hmm. Now, Matthew, right here in the midst of the pandemic, with the number of COVID cases surging in many countries, what is your optimistic slash realistic view of the impact of the pandemic in the world? Okay, now optimism doesn't mean that you have to put a silver lining on everything. Okay, there's clearly, as usual, the in those type of crises, the poorest section of the population in a country and the poorest country in the world are those who suffer by vastly more. That's like that. This is the social injustice of any uh, difficulty that comes to us. So what sort of... Uh, good lesson we could get out of it. There are many. First of all, to see that you know we are still quite privileged. We, we were thinking that we became the master of the universe and we could manipulate genes and people on the moon. And then we also, this kind of arrogance has been you know, jeopardized by this little organism of one-tenth of thousand of a millimeter that, that put everything down, at least human arrogance. But still, relatively, you know, smallpox caused 300 million deaths in the 20th century. That's three times the both world wars together. And now, thanks to vaccination and so forth, this is zero. It's gone to zero. So it's amazing. It, it, a few millions will die every year. Simply, there's nothing you could do. So you get used to it and you live with that. So now, well, it's a, it's a certainly a, a, an unusual situation that, you know, people, many things came to an halt. But then what kind of other lesson we, there are quite few lessons we could draw from that. One of them is if you, you can still accept some country, I'm sorry for you, where the, you know, there was not enough determination to implement some drastic rules to, to protect the population. But many other countries have done so very, very successfully. You know, you can see New Zealand and Taiwan and to some extent, European countries, not anyway, quite a few managed to, even China managed to control that. So that means uh, the government can take drastic measure and the population is sort of willing to follow it. So you think, well, you know, if one half of that determination and uh, rigor could be used to tackle climate change, then we will get somewhere finally. And there are many decisions we could take that will go that way. There's a very recent paper in Nature Sustainability, it's one of the scientific uh, famous journal, which shows that if we were to shift to a more a, a plant-based um, uh, uh, you know, diet, we could uh, gain back 15, 15 years in CO2 emission. Just that, because uh, the whole chain that leads to uh, you know, cattle farming, which takes 80% of the land, and the old chain of, uh, uh, you know, of bringing uh, food from the developing country to rich country to produce meat and so forth, is the second cause of greenhouse gas emission uh, 
15%, just below uh, habitation and, and even before transportation. So all that could be done. So you say, okay, you know, government has taken some strong measure. Why don't they do that for, the, for this? And another um, idea was, well, you know, well, yes, another if, point to reflect and we can act upon is if you look at all the virus um, epidemics for the last 30 years, whether it's starting with AIDS, Ebola, swine flu, bird flu, the SARS, the COVID-19, all of them were uh, through unhealthy relation to other species, either through excessive industrial animal farming and in conditions that are horrendous, or encroaching on wildlife. Those two. All of the, all those big viral epidemics were linked to uh, unhealthy dealings with the 8 million other species which are co-citizens in this world. So there are lessons to take from that. So we should take them, I don't know, let's see. Okay, so the book Freedom for All of Us takes this arc that you described in the beginning of our conversation. We've talked some about what the obstacles are to inner freedom, what supports inner freedom, and then you move into how we can train in inner freedom and the harvest that's possible. And I wanna spend uh, the last part of our conversation talking about the harvest, but before we do, just very briefly about the training. You know, I have to be honest with you, Matthew, when you talk about scientific studies, I get insights, light bulbs go on for me. You explain things that aren't easy for me to necessarily understand just through reading. So I wanted to ask you in terms of the training of inner freedom, in the book, you cite studies that show that meditation and mindfulness training, open awareness, yes, is very helpful, very important, concentration, but that also we actually need to train in loving kindness if we're going to develop loving kindness. It doesn't just naturally come online on its own without that training. At least that was my understanding of what you wrote. And I'd love to understand more about the studies that point to the kind of training we actually need here. Well, you know, if you do physical training, if you muscle your arms, you're not muscling your legs. That's as simple as that. Of course, it's a bit reductionist to apply that to mind, but it's a good image. I mean, if you learn the piano, you will not learn chess. So why should meditation be a generic term? It's, no, it's, a, it's, it's just as um, general as training. If you say to someone, I'm training, the people will wait for what's next. You know, good for you, but what do you train? Do you play American football or you play, <laughs> you play chess? It's not the same thing. So I'm training is not enough. I'm meditating means basically nothing. It means you are training your mind. So okay. So therefore, you know, there are the wonderful program that John Kabat-Zinn developed over thirty years called the mindfulness-based stress reduction. Because in those days, meditation was. Not easy to bring, especially in the medical world, but everyone was stressed, so reduction stress was a very good approach. But if you look at the MBSR training, it's a very complete set of training over eight weeks or six months, which includes all kinds of other aspects than just pure mindfulness, like loving kindness, the group situation, doing physical exercise, yoga, and so forth. Now, my friend Tanya Singer, 
I did what probably the, the largest longitudinal study. That means you keep people going things for like nine months. And she took a large sample of subject, like 180 or something. And then she made them just do three months of each three types of uh, practice or techniques. One was mindfulness, not MBSR intervention, but just pure mindfulness, the way it is described, moment-to-moment -moment attention in non-judgmental way to the state of your mind. So just pure mindfulness, attentive, clarity, and so forth. And then there was three months where they did so-called perspective taking. It's a, you know, you try to put some in other shoes to see what they feel, to think about the other's situation. So you try to be, open your mind to others. And then the third one is metta in Pali, which is uh, you know, loving kindness, compassion. Oh, it's more or less the same. You know? Loving kindness is wishing everyone find happiness and the cause of happiness and compassion is loving kindness applied to suffering. It is uh, wishing when people suffer, then loving kindness become compassion, which is the wish made they cease to suffer and be free from the cause of suffering. So what she found, and also she played by, you know, to, to minimize the order effect. She's some, some group were starting with, uh, with compassion and then uh, doing mindfulness second and, and so forth. So there was all this permutation to make sure that there was not a effect because of the order in which you do the practice. And what she found is very, very clear. Mindfulness increase your attentiveness, your quality of paying attention, of being mindful. Okay, that's what you're training for. You got it. But if you test the prosocial behavior, it has no impact. It doesn't make you a worse person. Uh, uh, it's very wonderful to be mindful. And I guess if you do the MBSR training, you become also more compassionate. But just pure mindfulness doesn't make you more prosocial, more altruistic. Perspective taking you become a little bit more pro-social because you keep on thinking about the other situation and then there's some kind of empathic concern, as Daniel Batson would say, that leads to wanting to care. But not so much. But if you measure the way you are more aware about others, it increases. And then when you practice metta, loving kindness, there's a big increase. Not only in the report, how altruistic I feel, but you measure the behavior in certain situations and prosocial behavior increase significantly. And that's not surprising because that's what you are training for. So in a way, loving kindness should not be expected to be an automatic byproduct of other types of meditation. It may happen if you are in a particular setting with a good teacher who is very kind, but per se, the techniques has no reason to yield that. So now, also, she found that, you know, the networks, in the signature in the brain was very different. I mean, it's not the same network that were increased, even structurally, that changed, you know, increase of the gray matter and more volume and more activity, functionally. They were not the same if we do those three types of meditation. So it's, actually, this is nothing surprising. It's simply that all those human qualities need to be cultivated for themselves. And then you will get the result. <laughs> what can I say? Yeah, it's very intuitively obvious when you describe it. There's also an emphasis in the training section of the book on the value of effort. Oh, yeah. And you go so far as to say discrediting effort 
is the attitude of a spoiled child. I thought that was a great comment, you know, yeah. kind of like a, uh, some cold water in the face, because I do think certain people on the spiritual path are like, you know, I just relax, I open, I don't really believe in exerting too much effort. Why should I effort if my original goodness is already here? Why should I effort? Yeah, well, you know, especially my friend, the, the psychiatrist, Christophe André, you know, he noticed how much everything should be easy. This is crazy. You know, the, the secret of happiness in three points and three weeks. First, there's no secret. Second, there's no three point. And that is not easy. But so what? It's the best thing you could do in life to become a better person and, and flourish and so forth. So this discrediting of effort is, is really this small. It's like kids who want everything now. And how can it work? You know, the, the universe is not a mail order catalog for your fans. <laughs> and if something would be easy, that's very suspicious. That means it's not doing any change because change comes with sustained efforts. I mean, think of a pianist who, or any musician, any sportman, any, any skill who would want to play Mozart or Bach by just, you no know, doing a few exercises once every two weeks. But you can say it's a spoiled child. He wants that to be as easy as a millionaire who can buy all kinds of gimmicks and buy anything he wants or she wants but you cannot buy being playing the piano. <laughs> it doesn't work like that. Mm -hmm. So you have to work hard and so what? We know ascesis, the, the, English, the Greek word, which we think of asceticism. Ascesis means exercise, exercise, practice, practice, practice. That's the only way. Why? I mean, Everyone accept the idea, except the kids maybe at the beginning, that they should go 15 years to school, then have a professional training. And you do all kinds of training, adult training, all this stuff. So why human qualities should be an exception to the rule and be at their more optimal state that you, you can be according to your own potential right from the start? That's crazy idea. Of course, mm -hmm. they have a potential. And that potential needs to be magnified slowly, slowly by cultivating those qualities. That's the only way. <laughs> what kind of magic trick would apply to the mind that doesn't apply to every other skill? <laughs> now, in terms of the fruits of inner freedom, you mentioned how it's valuable to have role models. And in your own life, could you pick someone that you've experienced as an embodiment of inner freedom, a role model for you, and introduce us to this person. Give us a sense of that. Well, you know, my, my friend, psychiatrist, he think, I think you are exaggerating, he says. You know, those person must have some kind of weakness or something like that. But what to say, you know, I would have never spent 50 years in the Himalayas uh, if it wasn't that I met some great teachers, which... However many years you spend in their present, and I was fortunate with my first teacher, Kangu Rinpoche, in Darjeeling to spend seven years uh, being his student. And then with Dilko Kensa Rinpoche, I spent 13 years continuously with him, day and night, because I, I was one of his two attendants. I used to sleep on the floor and uh, be there any time, whether he would teach to humble farmers or to kings. Uh, in Tibet, in the West, in India, in Bhutan, in Nepal, constantly with him. 
Now, after 13 years of being in public area, in, in, in the intimate situation, when you never witness and even guess of one thought, one word, one action that could be harmful to others, just absolute zero, then you, you say something is there, you know, <laughs> it's not quite of, you can say, well, of course, they are spiritual teacher, but how many, uh, you know, so-called spiritual teacher or, or role models, there's a kind of facade and then it's not always as rosy from, from the backside. So when you see an absolute perfect coherence and a coherence that is not to this kind of willpower, you know, I'm, I'm going to behave nicely and not do the, it is just the way they are. They are totally incapable of doing anything that could be slightly harmful. They, all they do is to be useful to others. They have nothing to gain, nothing to lose, everything to share, everything to give. So that may seem exaggerated, but I remember one of my younger teachers, Osaken Serimboshi, said that if we do praise those great masters, even we use most hyperbolic words, and people say, oh, you are really exaggerating. And that's what my friend Christophe Ango is saying. But we are still much far behind actually decreeing the incredible quality. So that's, I'm personally spent my life near those teachers. I never found the, the, the hidden sort of faults. Of course, there are plenty of so-called teachers that behave wrongly. We have seen that all over the place. But those authentic great masters like Sonata Dalai Lama, Dilgo Kensi Rinpoche, Dunjom Rinpoche, I mean, to name a few, like Kongu Rinpoche, my first teacher. I mean, this is, uh, for me, there's an absolute clear, uh, absolute clear cut that they are the example of what human perfection can be. So, okay. And it's, you know, there's a, there are a few things about belief. You may believe in something even you don't have any proof. Then you may get a confidence in something because it keeps on verifying it. And so that's some kind of grounded conviction. Then there is blind faith, which is to believe in something when you have the proof that is wrong, that is false. And that's what we see all the time now these days. So in my case, of course, it's not something material that I can put in a machine and measure and something. But when you see this kind of absolute coherence, effortless coherence over time, and you say, well, that's it. You know, those persons truly have got rid of all those mental toxins, have developed all those qualities, and that's wonderful, and why not? So they show me what is the end of the path, so at least I get a sense of direction. So, <laughs> so this, you know, for me, that's the biggest teaching and for great fortune of my life. So I'm very, very far from anything like that, but at least I have this confidence and I know that by walking in that direction, that's the best thing I can do instead of going here and there. Mm -hmm. That's an interesting word, coherence. I'm, you know, reflecting on that as you're speaking. What's the point of, you know, saying something and doing something else or even being something else? And recently I was thinking, uh, you know, it's so much better, say, for instance, to, be, to know that you did nothing wrong and yet you are wrongly accused of something. Well, it's not very pleasant. Deep within, you're still coherent with yourself, yes? So it's so much better than being covered in praises and all these things and to know that there's something deeply wrong that you did to others or you did something really wacky you did. Because it's even more uncomfortable when people praise you. 
So coherence is really, really important and give you a lot of freedom also because you don't care whatever people might say. You know, when the Dalai Lama says, some people say, I'm a snake in monk's robe, nonsense. Some people say, I'm living God, nonsense. I'm just a Buddhist monk trying his best to bring something about human values. So that's it. <laughs> Matthew, I, I am going to ask you one last question that I'm going to sneak in here because, you know, I've heard so many legendary stories of Tibetan teachers and masters and things they've done. And then in your book, Freedom for All of Us, towards the end of the book and talking about the fruits of inner freedom and exploring in this section called Dealing with Death, you tell a story of Sengdrak Rinpoche uh -huh. and his dying process. And when I read that, I thought, that's the kind of thing where I would have this reaction because I'm a little skeptical. One of the qualities of pessimism, I'm a little skeptical. Thought, is that really true? Like, did that really happen? So I wonder if you could tell that story and and how you think it exemplifies inner freedom. And we'll end on that. Well, note. It happened many times, in fact, even to anyway. It's called, what happens with Central Rinpoche. He was a very very close student of Kensei Rinpoche, even though he. He started, I mean, he was um, a main practitioner of the Drupakagyu tradition, for those who know Tibetan Buddhism. My Kansan Moshe was more like a Rime teacher, but with his you know, root was in the Nyingma tradition. But he was very, very close. Kansan Moshe thought of him probably in terms of practice as his, let's say, best students, if we could say that doesn't make much sense, but he said that once. So he was a wonderful teacher. You know, he had a... Mahamudra teacher that would give him four lines every every six months to meditate upon. Yeah, some some might know about with Tibetan Buddhism the so-called preliminary practices. He did that fifteen times. You now people protest when they have to do it once, and he was so light and simple and uh, joyful. I mean, this perfect person. So then he became a. When he was, uh, I think, something late 50s or maybe 60s, he got leukemia. So he was in his hermitage and in the mountains. There was two or 300 practitioners around him uh, under his guidance. And uh, he said, well, if they come, they come. If they want to go, they go. So his students uh, begged him to come down to Kathmandu uh, to go to some hospital. Uh, but, you know, he was not so keen. But anyway, he went. And then there was uh, a friend of mine who is a, who is a doctor. Uh, he's also a monk. And he was with him, uh, an American monk. And then so he, uh, so he followed him. And at some point, he was getting weaker and weaker. So Central Rinpoche told him, when, when the time comes, please you know, give me a sign. So he's called, he's, uh, the doctor is called Barry Kurzin. He's a wonderful person. So at some point, all the vital signs were going blue, 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 blue. So he said, you know, maybe it's time. So then Central Rinpoche sort of sat down, uh, you know, in, in meditation posture. He looked in the sky and he uttered the letter R, which is the letter of symbolizing the emptiness from where everything comes. And then he passed away. And before that, he had asked Ramjan Rinpoche, who is the grandson of Kensal Rinpoche, to come to visit him at the hospital. And he said he wanted his body to be transported to our monastery. So Ramaboshi took it in the car, you know, still sitting, and kept it in the room. So now usually, you know, it was like uh, in May, so I think, so it already a bit hot. Uh, 
And I can tell you, because we often get deal with dead people, <laughs> it starts smelling very, very fast. So there, within a one week, 10 days, only a very sort of uh, sweet fragrance, something like orange or orange peels or something very, very sweet and delicious. Never any kind of you know, decomposing body. His body was completely supple, no rigor mortis. And then he was actually sitting, like in meditation, and you would think that somehow he's, he's, something, he's still there. There was something about not, he's not gone, he's not, uh, he's not completely a dead body, a corpse. He didn't look like a corpse at all. And then Jean-Jean Boucher, I didn't, I didn't do that, but he would touch uh, his chest uh, with the palm of his hand, and for a few days he, he still felt some heat. So this is called Tukdam, so-called post-mortem meditation. And there are many, many cases like that, 10 days, 15 days. And then at some point, there are some signs. You know, there's some fluids coming from the nose and other signs. And then within an hour, the body becomes like a corpse. And the tukdam is sort of finished. And then you deal with the body. So that's happened again and again. You know, at least I know 10 examples like that, including one in France of a wonderful practitioner who did nine years retreat just next to this house where I'm staying now. He spent 15 days. And the doctor... The legal doctor has to come every week and he says, I don't know what I was going on. You know, this is crazy. But anyway, so let it be. So, you know, this thing happened. And I think uh, Richard Davidson at uh, Wisconsin is uh, put a team with Tibetan doctors to see if we find, uh, you know, at least to measure, say that there's a temperature or put one electrode to see if there's something happening. But as the Dalai Lama said, when there are great practitioners who die, we don't have the machine. And when we have the machine, there's no great practitioner who dies. So anyway, let's see. I don't know if science will be able to find something, but um, there's something going on in terms of study. But in terms of testimony, it certainly happened many times. So I don't know. As a scientist, I don't have any rational expl explanation to offer, but it seems to be happening. So I don't know. <laughs> mm -hmm. And the connection with the inner freedom of someone at this level of harvest, as you described, at the end of our life. Yeah. It's very exceptional, but it's, it refers to some kind of mastery of the subtle aspect of the mind. And it is a time where the practitioner, uh, it's a very special time for practice where we can cross very fast different levels. So that's what it is said. Now, Great, great teachers like Kensei Moshe, they don't need that. They're already completely free. So usually they don't, they don't stay in such a state because there's nothing much to, more to gain for them in terms of inner freedom. But this is a, you can imagine that dying is a kind of testing time for a practitioner, <laughs> at least we can say. Yeah. Uh, and so they take sort of the advantage of this very special situation to progress uh, steps very fast. So that's what the tradition say. So I have no idea. Even Dalai Lama said when you ask him well, I don't know how you, you think it's going to happen at death, he said, I'm very curious to see what happens. So what could I say, me, as just a small practitioner? Matthew Ricard, thank you so much. Thank you for making the time for this conversation, for bringing your generosity and great intelligence and discriminating mind and helping us feel the vision of inner freedom. Thank you so much. Thank you, Demi, and take care. I've been speaking with Matthew Ricard, along with his co-authors, 
Christophe André, a well-known French psychiatrist, and Alexandre Jolien, Swiss philosopher. They've created a book of dialogues about inner freedom. It's called Freedom for All of Us, a monk, a philosopher, and a psychiatrist on finding inner peace. It is a book that was originally written and published in French, which has now been brought out in the English language for the first time by Sounds True. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for listening to Insights at the Edge. You can read a full transcript of today's interview at soundstrue.com forward slash podcast. And if you're interested, hit the subscribe button in your podcast app. And also, if you feel inspired, head to iTunes and leave Insights at the Edge a review. I love getting your feedback, being in connection with you, and learning how we can continue to evolve and improve our program. Working together, I believe, we can create a kinder and wiser world. Soundstrue.com. Waking up the world. <laughs>